telling me the story of Jesus. Just a reminder, we, we've been going through this for a while, and we'll be in it for a while longer, as we're just now getting into Mark chapter 2. Um, that's where we'll be this morning, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 12. Uh, the goal of this series is to take all the Gospels and piece them together, so we can get to some beautiful image that the Gospels give us of Jesus' ministry and who He is. And we're going to do that with this passage this morning. Our focus, uh, or the focus of the passage is Jesus healing a paralytic. And our focus this morning is going to be on our greatest need. Um, I remember about 10 years ago, uh, I was between ministry positions, which is a nice way to say that I was unemployed at the time. And and our family was going through this time of faith and growing together. And our kids were really young at that time. Abby had just turned one. Um, but we were uh, invited over to some close family friends' uh, house. Uh, I was their, their youth pastor in my previous ministry position. And they had three boys and, and a girl. And so we went over and we had dinner with them. And uh, it was a really nice time. It was a good time together, kind of a healing time. We were laughing. We ate food together. We played uh, some board games together, and uh, it was just good for our hearts. And, but I remember in that particular moment of time in my life that my, my head was kind of in a cloud. I was trying to process a lot of stuff and, and work through a lot of stuff, and not only with ministry things, but in my relationship with God and, and why things were happening the way they were. Uh, but as we sat at the table, the father looked at me, and he asked me a question. He said, is there anything you all need? And I looked at him and I said, spoons. And I don't know where that came from exactly. I've been trying to figure that out. Um, Because I'm sure he was asking, because, you know, we had, Jamie was the only one working at the time. So I'm sure he was asking, like, if he could help with a lead for a job or maybe if we needed groceries or maybe we needed any uh, financial help or anything like that. And, And so when he asked about what we need, I said, spoons. And he didn't know how to take it. He actually kind of chuckled to himself, but I looked at him and I said, there's never enough spoons. I mean, that's just where I was mentally. And um, as I was thinking, why did I, spoons, I mean, (laughs) of all things, spoons, um, why did I answer that? And and the only thing I can come to conclude is what probably happened is during that time I was home with Abby, she had just turned one, and, and I imagine that that morning, I went to go get a bowl of cereal or a bowl of oatmeal and the dishwasher hadn't been run and there weren't any clean spoons and so I had to clean a spoon by hand and it frustrated me. It was so inconvenient. So when I said I was in need of spoons, I wanted more spoons so I wouldn't have to wash spoons again. And, uh, but I bring that story up because a lot of times that's what we can do when it comes to our needs. We can make something bigger than what they are. And for me it was just a matter of, of convenience that I didn't have a spoon. Uh, But we can substitute convenience for things of needs. And so our passage this morning is going to be focused on what are our greatest needs in this life. And so let's read through it. We're beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 2, and we'll read through verse 12. And when he, he is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, and when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time of being able to worship you, to praise you. You've always been faithful. You've always been good. To praise you that we know you as an intimate Father and a holy God. Or to praise you with our brothers and sisters in Christ to be under the promise of your word where two or more meet in your name that you are here. To know that your word says we are now able to enter into the throne room of grace that we may find grace and mercy. And though we open up your word to hear your voice speaking to our hearts. Not a pastor, not anyone else, but your voice. So let our ears be opened, let our hearts be softened. Father, let the gospel seed be given deep roots in our heart to grow. Transform us in this moment. Lord, point us to the things that we truly need in this life and what everyone needs in this life. Forgive us we failed you in any way. And again, thank you for your mercy and your grace. That your kingdom and will be done in this time. We praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> so our passage begins by bringing us back to Capernaum. We were here several weeks ago. This is the city to which Peter, James, John, and Andrew were all from. It's where they found their fishing uh, vocation on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is where Jesus initially taught in the synagogue in Capernaum, and the people marveled as his, at his authority with the Word of God, and then he cast out a demon in that same synagogue. This is the city that Peter invited Jesus to his house, where Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and later that day people began bringing those who needed healing, and demons needed to be cast out. We read back in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, the reason Jesus initially left Capernaum is He told His disciples, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. In Mark 2, Jesus returns and we're told that it's after some days. And though that's a very vague statement of time, it's meaning to imply that that initial excitement that began in Capernaum had began to die down just a bit. And, and, but when people hear that this miracle worker, this demon caster has now returned to this great city, they came to Peter's house or his mother-in-law's house and they bombarded it. They sieged it all around so there was nowhere for anyone to sit and it was standing room only. The word at home at the universe one literally means at a house. See, Jesus didn't own any property, so we're pointing back to the house that this all initially began at. And the scene is amazing. Standing room only. People flocked to Peter's house so much there wasn't even room in the doorway for people to hear and see Jesus. It can be speculated why people came to this moment, but most likely they came for entertainment or to be or see the tricks that Jesus could do. But Jesus reveals that He's not here to entertain us. He's not here to do tricks, but He's here to give us our greatest need. 
And what is he doing in this house? He's preaching the word, which is our greatest need. Our greatest need is the word. Now, when I say our, I'm not just speaking about believers. I'm speaking about all people. The word is a common way of saying Jesus was preaching the gospel. It refers to the message of the kingdom of God. And it's what we all need. It's what all people need. The people had flooded to this house, most likely wanting to see some sort of miracle, wanting to see something new that Jesus could do, but Jesus provides the most important thing that all people need, and that is the Word of God. You know, here in a little bit, we're all going to leave this place, and our stomachs are going to tell us we're going to need food. Well, the Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God is to be the sustenance of the believer. The Word of God is the means for someone who is lost to be found and saved. In Romans 10, we are told it is only by the Word of God and someone preaching the Word of God that someone can come into salvation. We're told in the Bible in numerous places that God's Word will never fail. The Bible tells us that God's Word is our offense and our defense against the attack of the enemy. We're told that the Word of God is living and is active. It's not just words on a page. We're told that the Word of God will never fade. This Word that Jesus preached is our greatest need. It not only frees us from the wages of sin, but it enlightens our minds and our hearts that we might know God more. It was the Word of God which created life in the beginning. And it was the Word of God which has given us life as children of God. It was the Word of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament that led God's people. It is the Word of God which shines and overpowers the darkness. And Jesus was the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We need the Word because it is Jesus Christ and God's voice gifted to us. You may have woke up this morning thinking, man, I need some coffee. I need some breakfast. I need to get ready to go. The reality is what we truly need is the Word of God dwelling in our hearts. We as God's people need to be studying this Word. We need to be reading it on our own. We need to be memorizing the Word of God. This Word is our Heavenly Father speaking to us and allowing us to draw closer to Him. In our passage, as Jesus is preaching the Word, the focus shifts to something happening outside the house in verse 3. We're told that four men are carrying either a paralytic friend or a paralytic relative. We'll just call him a friend for the sake of time. And since the news is spread that Jesus has now returned to Capernaum, and most likely these four men as well as the whole city remember what Jesus did the last time he was here, it really isn't a wonder why these four men are carrying their friend to Jesus. They wanted to get him there because they knew That if Jesus would be by their friend, he could be healed. Jesus had the power to do so. And Luke's recording of this same event, which happens in Luke chapter 6, we're told, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Meaning this house was electric with the presence of God. The literal presence of God in the flesh was in this house. would have been so foreign to these Jewish people who believed that the presence of God only dwelled in Jerusalem at the temple. But think about the effort that these four men had to go through to get their friend to Jesus. It would have begun by coming up with the idea that we need to get him on a mat, we need to carry him through the town. 
And as they come to the, the house where all the people are gathered, they would have to climb up on top of the house in order to get in. We're told they removed the roof above him in verse 4. It literally means they dug through the roof. One commenter said it would not take much of a crowd to make it impossible to bring a stretcher case into a room in a normal Capernaum house. Those which have been excavated had small rooms, seldom to reach as much as five meters across. And since the width was limited by the length of tree trunks available for roofing, the housing, like most in ancient Palestine, were single-story structures with flat roofs accessible by an outside staircase or ladder. The roof was used for working and sometimes for sleeping, and so it was not flimsy in construction. Wooden beams or branches were thatched with rush and daubed with mud. And Mark's description of how the men unroofed the roof therefore suggests a major demolition job. Literally, they dug it out. Now, as I come to this, this passage, this is one of my mom's favorite stories because there's so many images that come to my mind. And, and I always imagine the conversation between these four guys. If you've ever been with guys who are set on a project, whether it's building something or destroying something, you know when you have at least four guys, you're going to have at least four ideas on how to go about the project, right? And so they're going to be talking it out, and, and they're going to be laying out. And I imagine these four men, as they've just walked through town, carrying their friend, come to this house that is bombarded with people. I bet there's at least one guy in the group that was a pessimist. There's probably one guy who looked at the crowd and looked at his friend and said, Sorry, bud, but man, we tried. Yeah, I guess it's just not meant to be. And when you have a group of guys, you always need at least one guy who's patient, right? you got to have one guy who kind of keeps a clear head, and he's probably the guy holding the mat that's saying, well, you know, we could just wait. We could just wait for everyone to clear out, and when they clear out, then we can get to Jesus. We know he's in there, so we'll just wait till we can get to him. Of course, you've got a patient guy, you've got to have an impatient guy, right? The guy who says, no, let's just plow through, man. Let's just get it. Let's go through this thing because this is more important than whatever's going on in there. This is the most important thing in the moment. And then you've got the creative guy. The guy who looks and assesses the situation, he says, I know what we're going to do. We're going through the roof. The thing about these four guys standing outside weighing their options, and one guy comes up with the plan that we're going to go through the roof. Not only would have been the creative guy, but sometimes the creative guy has to be the crazy guy. Meaning, when the crazy guy slash creative guy has the plan, no one really wants to question that because you don't really know what the crazy guy is going to do if you question his plan. But what these four men, however they came about the tactic to get to Jesus, revealed us in our greatest need, is our greatest need is getting to Jesus. The easiest thing for these four guys to do is to look at their situation, assess it, and just say, okay, let's give up, let's go home. They had tried, but the way was blocked. But these four men care too much for their friend to give up. And one of them decided the best course of action was to do this mission impossible scene where they were going to lower their friend from the roof down to the floor. These four men were not going to let anything stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. I think most of us here this morning would say we know that our greatest need is Jesus Christ. He is the only means of salvation. He is the only means of our forgiveness. He is the only way that we can get to heaven. But how many of us realize that Jesus is everyone's greatest need? 
How many of us will go to any effort to see our friends and co-workers, our family, get to Jesus? In my experience, I haven't seen this as much as I should in myself and in believers. I tend to see us as believers put barriers up for people not be able to get to Jesus, and sometimes we just make up our own imaginary barriers. Barriers that, well, you know, it might get uncomfortable. We put up barriers, well, if I, if I bring Jesus up, I might lose a friend or I might aggravate a family member. We bring barriers up that, well, you know, I shouldn't talk about Jesus at work because workplace isn't the place we have those conversations, which is ironic because many of us will talk about work while we're here. We put up barriers that it's not going to be the right time or barriers that, well, I don't think I have the time. Perhaps this world's lack of desire for Jesus is because they see a lack of need of Jesus in the life of believers. We talk freely about sports and weather and our jobs and our kids and the shows and movies we watch. And you know, these aren't bad things. I do it frequently, particularly when I'm at church with people and just talking about things that are going on in life. But the reality is our greatest need in this world's greatest need is Jesus. As God's people, we cannot let anything become a barrier to getting people to Jesus. And we definitely don't need to make barriers of excuses and why we can't share Jesus. See, wherever God has put you, whether you're a student at school or whether you're at your workplace, that is the place that God has established as your mission field to let people meet Jesus through you. And it might get uncomfortable. It might not be cool. It might not feel like the right time. But these four men show us that those are lame excuses. Can you imagine Peter in this moment? I mean, the first time Jesus comes to his house, the place is surrounded by people that night. I mean, that would just make me uncomfortable. People just showing up at my house that I didn't know, wanting to see Jesus. And now he brings Jesus back to his house. And I wonder if Peter's now having any sort of reservation of hanging out with this guy or let alone bringing him to his house as they rip open his roof. But can you imagine being in the home? You're sitting there, standing there. And here's this man who's teaching the Word of God with such authority and such power. You're being mesmerized. But all of a sudden, you hear a little above you. Something's thumping on the roof, but you don't know what it is, so you kind of wave it off and you get your attention back on Jesus. But eventually, you can't help but notice things are beginning to fall from the roof down to where people are standing. There's debris falling from the sky. And you have to look up, and as you look up, you see the sun burst open. And these four guys look in, and I imagine the crazy one smiled and waved, right? And then all of a sudden, this... This opening in the roof is filled by this object that seems to be getting closer and closer coming down. I'm amazed that none of the Gospels record the people panicked. But I imagine Peter looked up. What in the world are you doing in my house? This is inconvenient. This is not cool, man. I mean, right? You do not tear open somebody's house. This is not the time to do this. You do not have a major construction project while you have a massive amount of people in your home. Do you know how much this is going to cost to fix? 
But as the roof opened up, these four men lowered their friends down and they teach us a lesson. As God's people, we must have the mentality of these four men to stop at nothing, at nothing, in getting the ones we love to Jesus. And sometimes it's going to be a little bit crazy. Sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not going to be the cool thing. Sometimes it's not going to be the best time. But we have to do it. Because none of that matters. Because we know that if a person does not have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are lost and they are heading to hell. And we literally look them in the eyes every single day and we don't get them to Jesus. If we truly love the people that God has put in our life, the greatest thing we can do is introduce them. As unprecedented what these four men did in tearing through the roof, can you imagine their response when they heard Jesus' words to their paralytic friend? I would have been confused. Jesus saw the faith of these four men. I mean, they did all the work. They did what James says, faith without works is dead. They did all the work in doing their friend to Jesus. They had a faith that Jesus could heal. And I imagine the paralytic had to have a faith in these four men and their ideas. And Jesus looks at them and He says, Son, your sins are forgiven in verse 5. And we've all had those moments in life where someone says something. If you're a parent, it typically comes from your kids when they make some sort of comment and you're like, wait, what? And I imagine that's what these four guys thought. What did he say? For, what? No, Jesus, we want healing, not forgiveness. We don't want to carry him back. We don't want to pull him back up this hole. We want him to be healed. There's no doubt they went through all this effort for their friend to be healed. But see, Jesus never misses the opportunity for teaching. These four men just delivered him an incredible opportunity for him to reveal who he was as not just a miracle worker, but that he was God in the flesh come to save the world from its sins. Jesus' words to the man had just, who had just been lowered down reveals our greatest, another of our greatest needs. Our greatest need is spiritual. I know we pray for healings. We pray for people who are going to have surgery or just have surgery that they would recover. We pray for people who are sick to feel better and get their strength back. And we look through Scripture and we see there is a backing in Scripture to have these sort of prayers, but the greatest need that someone can have is not overcoming cancer, not becoming physically healthy, and not recovering from an injury. Everyone's greatest need is at a spiritual level. It is where are they in their relationship with God and are they a right standing before Him? Jesus could heal this man and he would eventually. But instead, he, he gives this man the greatest gift ever. He removes all of this man's sins before God. The reality is these bodies aren't meant to last. This is why the Bible tells us when we get to heaven, we get new bodies. Yes, can't wait for that update, right? But these bodies get sick. They get injured. As you get older, you pull things that you didn't normally pull, and you pull them more frequently. And these bodies eventually are going to give out and die. The reality is this life is some people will not be physically healed on this side of eternity, but if they are spiritually healed, then the physical healing will ultimately come. And we can pray and desire physical healing, but the utmost need is to is know people are healed spiritually 
and therefore in a right standing before God. Why did Jesus say this to this man? I mean, he, he was God in the flesh. He surely knew that his friends didn't bring him all this way so Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven. This man and his friends wanted healing. But Jesus isn't going to miss this opportunity. In this house, which was mostly standing room only, in verse 6, we're told that there were scribes. The Gospel of Luke elaborates a little bit more when he tells us that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law also present in this house on this day. And these people are most likely here just as they did to John the Baptist when they went to see him in the wilderness. They wanted to know who he was. By what authority was he doing these things? And, and why? No doubt news is spread to Jerusalem and they heard of this man up in Capernaum in the region of Galilee that was healing people that he was casting out demons, that he was teaching the Word of God with such authority that the people recognized his authority over the scribes. Capernaum was a place that was buzzing. And in Mark and Luke's account of this event, they both tell us that the religious elite were sitting. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there. Now, sitting is a normal practice when you're in a synagogue or a teaching moment. Uh, it's to show respect, most likely to a teacher, but never in a household. See, these religious elite were sitting because they were placing the, taking the place of dignity in the house. They were sitting, and it was taking up more room. As people were trying it in a doorway, it was a standing room only, and they were taking up more space that more people could have gotten in. But they were too dignified to stand. And upon hearing Jesus' words of sons, your sins are forgiven, in verse 5, verse 7 reveals their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These men weren't wrong, and only God could forgive sins. That's why they shout out blasphemy, or that's why their hearts shouted out. But their hearts revealed through their, their hearts revealed through their first question. The first one is, why does this man speak like that? In verse 7, the word man can be read as fellow, meaning in their hearts they saw this man named Jesus, and their view of him is he was not like anything different than anyone else in this city. He was just another man that was in the city of Capernaum that people were attaching these miracles to. And their second question is preceded by their accusation of blasphemy. Blasphemy falls under the terms of a man claiming to do what only God can do. Which, if Jesus was only a man, he was in fact blaspheming. And blasphemy was punishable by death according to the law. So these religious elites were revealing their hearts that they were not ready to accept Jesus for who He was. The charge of blasphemy is ultimately going to be how they get Jesus onto the cross. But our passage implies they didn't dare let these questions out, right? They're not going to say this out loud for people to hear. Instead, cowardly, they questioned in their hearts. They weren't stupid. They knew Jesus had the momentum. They weren't going to take Him on in this arena. But Jesus revealed His deity in verse 9, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus question within themselves. And so what does Jesus do about it? He calls them out. 
The religious, knew that only, religious elite knew that only God could forgive sins. But they also should have known only God can search a man's heart. But they are too oblivious to what Jesus just did in searching their own. They sat in the midst of authority and were blinded by what they perceived as their own authority. And Jesus needed them and us here today to realize another greatest need. Our greatest need is to recognize God's authority. Jesus takes these men's accusations and he turns it on its head. He asks them a question. Which is easier? Is it easier to say someone's sins are forgiven or is it easier to heal someone who is paralyzed? And the answer to the crowd would have been obvious. Anyone can say the words, you're forgiven. I forgive you. It would be much more of a feat to see a man healed of a physical handicap and walk out of the house. And the reason for Jesus' initial calling of sins to be forgiven is to reveal His authority to everyone in the house that day. Verse 10 and 11, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. With that, the man was carried to the house, lowered through the roof, grabbed his mat, got up on his feet, scurried out the door. Jesus' authority and equality with God would have been un debatable in this moment and this is what they needed to see and this is what jesus wanted them to understand that he wasn't just a man that he was god in the flesh with full authority and power of god this is actually the first time in the gospel of mark that jesus reveals himself in this manner to a large group of people the phrase title son of phrase and title son of man was the most common way that Jesus would refer to himself throughout the Gospels. And it held many meanings to those who would have heard it. It meant that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophetic calling, that his mission was to be fully obedient to God, even to the point of suffering as the faithful suffering servant. And it gives the promise of vindication in front of these dignitaries sitting on the floor who presumed they had authority. Jesus revealed that He was the only one of dignity and the only one of authority in this room. And unfortunately, these religious leaders didn't get it. If you read through chapter 2, there's going to be three more times that they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to question why He's doing what He's doing. Why are you not fasting? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? Why are you hanging out with these types of people? And it reveals when we don't recognize God's authority in our life, we pave the way for destruction. Jesus came to save us. Praise the Lord. He came to save us. But the Bible reveals that Jesus cannot be your Savior unless He is also your Lord. And the word Lord means Master. As God's people, we are called to submit and live under the authority of God, which is found through His Word and in Jesus Christ. And our entire life is going to be a spiritual battle about being obedient to God. But we are called to be slaves of God and therefore slaves of righteousness. Authority over us isn't the money in this world. It isn't the government that we live under. But we are under the authority of the one true God. Yet all too often, how many times do we flip those? How many times do we worry about one more than the other? 
by us living under God's authority, what the Bible says, when we live under God's authority, we actually show that we love God. And when we live under God's authority, we show the world that God is the one true God. And this is what the world needs to see. God's people living in and under His authority. Another greatest need we see comes from the response of the people in verse 12. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Gospel Matthew says that people were afraid and they glorified God. Why were they afraid? Because they just, reviewed, they just saw the glory and authority of God displayed in their midst. Luke says an amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe. Our greatest need is to be in awe of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 8, as he marveled at God's name and His creation, he says, When I look to the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And the son of man in Psalm 8, that refers to humanity. God, why do you look on humanity who is filled with sin and care for us? If you need to move to a place of being in awe of God, I, I urge you to get out in creation. Get away from the TV and the computer and the phone. I mean, take your phone for pictures, but to get out somewhere in creation. Admire a sunrise. Admire a sunset, depending on what type of person you are. If you're a morning person or a night person. Go to the beach or the mountains. Marvel at the fact that the God who created all this beauty knows you by name. You and me are one of nearly 8 billion people on this planet, and yet we have God's attention. We don't have to raise our hand and hope God sees us. We don't have to raise our voice and make enough noise for God's attention to come to us. We don't even have to act out. The Bible says we have God's attention and we have had it before we were even born. God knows our coming and our going. He knows the thoughts in our minds. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows our most exciting moments in life. And He knows our most boring. The Bible says He formed us in the womb and He knew us even then. He knows our secrets. And He knows the things we share. He knows the things we struggle with and our sins. He knows every detail about our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And get this, He loves us. He's written everything about us in His book. And if we belong to Him, He's taken our name and He's put it into His book of life. He is a God worthy of praise, which the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You're worthy. And I'm in awe of You. There's a song on the radio sung by Chris Tomlin that's written by another artist by the name of Andrew Peterson. You've probably heard it. It begins with questions. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he was David's root, and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory, is He worthy? And the emphatic answer is He is. He is worthy. He's worthy and He is everyone's greatest need. He loves you. He loves me, despite myself at times. 
And because He loves me and has a great plan in store for me and in store for us, we can willingly submit to His authority. And we can joyfully be aware and in awe of Him. This is what people need to see. This may be what you need to hear this morning. Has your greatest spiritual need been met, not only by hearing the Word of God, but by accepting the Word of God and thereby accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This is what makes the Gospels the Gospels or the good news. Because it reminds us that this God who is mighty and awesome and great and created all things and knows all things and can do all things, this God created everyone here and everyone we know for a relationship with Him. Problem is, everyone we know, including ourselves, wrestle with sin and sin separates us from God and we can't remove the sin problem. But that's why Jesus Christ came. Not to do miracles, not to baffle the people or make other people upset. Jesus Christ came to die on a cross for the sins of the world. And the Bible says when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and what He did, not what we can do, but what He did, we will be saved. It begins by confessing to God that you are a sinner. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And then confessing that you need that and you believe it. If you're here this morning and you've not had your greatest need met and that's your spiritual need, I'm going to invite you to come down. Say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want Jesus. But maybe you're here and you're like me and you've been distracted with spoons. And it's to focus back on God that He is all I really need. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask Nick and whoever else is helping Nick out to come up. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for allowing us this time where we can refocus on you. You are great and mighty and awesome. And we thank you for being our shepherd, for being personal, for filling our greatest need, that we might be restored back to you. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who has not begun a relationship with you, who has not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that their heart would be stirred right now by the power of your Spirit, and they would come down and have that changed right now. Lord, forgive us as your people. You know we did distract it just as much as the Israelites did in the Old Testament. Lord, help us to keep our eyes tuned to you and our hearts tuned to you. You are the greatest thing that we have. And praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.